Hey, glad you're here this morning. Uh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, praise team, for joining us. Connor coming in clutch and assembling this illustrious group of young people together. You know what? I'm encouraged about the future of our church because the future of our church is now. We already have young leaders who are leading in worship. So Danya, Henry, everybody else that's a part of that team, thank you for your leadership this morning and being leaders in our community. I don't know about you, but I feel like the summer is just flying by. Someone's got the pedal to the metal at 90 miles an hour, and we find ourselves at the third week in the week, weekend of July. Um, fourth weekend's coming up, like we're hitting August. Uh, the college students probably don't want to know that school starts in four weeks. Those of you that are in uh, KS or CTA, uh, fewer than that. The public school as well, starting in just a couple of weeks. The summer is flying by. But I'm glad this morning, this Sabbath, that we get to ta- some time together to just pause, to rest, to relax, to reflect, and to be in the presence of Jesus. And I hope this morning that you are introduced to him or reintroduced to him again, whether you're here in person, on the floor, in the balcony, or watching online. We're glad that you're here this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 18 today. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 18. And this week and next week, finish up our series, Hello, My Name Is. We're going to get the last word from the Gospel of John today. And next week, we are going to dive into how Jesus introduces himself, still through the eyes of John, but from the book of Revelation as we close out this series. But today, we're in John 18. And you may be wondering, hey, I know this is uh, kind of middle of the summer. We're talking about the final week before Jesus is, is heading to the cross. And this passage comes after his prayer and before he heads to the cross. Like, what are we doing? Well, it's John's final introduction of who Jesus is. And maybe the last one that Jesus will be most explicit with who he is. And he has the opportunity in the face of a cohort of arresting police officers to declare that he is Christ the Messiah. And we're going to look at this passage this morning under the title, Whom Do You Seek? John chapter 18. As we open up God's word, let's invite his presence to be with us. God, our Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time that we have to just pause. And God, we pray that you will sit down right beside us right now. That you will make an introduction or a reintroduction, whatever our heart needs right here in this moment. God, thank you for showing up. May you speak to us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Immediately preceding John chapter 18, Jesus is in prayer to his father. He's praying long and hard. He's labored, asking God's hand to be upon his disciples. And he's making declarations about what will come soon in the cross. And he's holding on to the name that the father has given him. He's glorifying the father. The father is glorifying the son. And he asks the father to keep his disciples in his name. It says, you've given me that name, the, the I am, the Messiah. You've given me that name. Now keep my disciples in that name. And we pick up the story, John chapter 18, verse 1. 
New International Version this morning, New Living Translation, didn't quite cut it for where we're headed today. New International Version, on the screen, in front of you, wherever you're watching. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Jesus has been with his disciples in the upper room. You know the story of the, the foot washing and the breaking of bread and the, the passing around of, of, of the wine. They were celebrating Passover together, but it was more than just your yearly Passover. The ultimate Passover lamb was about to be sacrificed for the salvation of the world. And I imagine in my mind's eye as Jesus and his disciples make their way down from the upper room. They're, they're in a place, they've got to come down some stairs. And I imagine they're, they're passing the, the busy streets and they're looking inside of windows and, and people are experiencing Passover together. And I imagine Jesus seeing this, knowing where he's headed in less than 12 hours, having a little bit of joy inside of him. He may not have been happy about where he was going, but he knew that all would soon be fulfilled. And think about this for a moment. The same Jesus, the one who had proclaimed that he was the bread of life, I am the bread of life, is passing by Passover meals where the children of Israel are breaking bread. Jesus, the I am, sees it and knows what this Passover will mean for his children. So they get to the garden and he and his disciples go inside and we continue the story, verses two and three. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples in verse three. So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Imagine that scene in your mind's eye. Judas knowing where Jesus is going to be. He's already been, been paid the silver. He says, I know where Jesus is going to be. He would, he, he would go to this garden regularly. And there's some uh, disagreement in the Gospels whether this was a regular practice for Jesus in the three and a half year ministry or if it was just in the Passion Week that he would regularly attend this garden. In either case, Judas knew that he and his disciples would head there. It was Jesus' regular practice to get away by himself for a while. And in the same irony of Jesus, the bread of life, passing by tables where the bread is being broken, imagine the irony of needing lanterns and torches to capture the light of the world in the darkness of night. John's not quite done with the irony in this passage, and there's a big juxtaposition here between Judas and Jesus. There's a knowledge that Jesus has that we're gonna see here in a moment, and Judas is working out his plan, and Judas kind of pops up as maybe a main character, but verse four shifts us back to Jesus identifying him as the one who is in control of the story. Let's look at verse four. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? And what's amazing to think about in this moment, Jesus seeing towards the cross, having the plan of salvation unlock with his father in heaven, 
He's looking for it, and he knows the circumstances and the events that are going to transpire in the next few hours. And he knows what's to come. He knows he's stepping into something that there, once he steps in, there is no way back. There is only the cross in front of him, and yet he is willing to do so. In the face of a trial, a challenging circumstance, how often do we willingly face challenges in front of us? If you're anything like me, I, I, you know, working in pastoral ministry, there, there are occasional minor conflicts that pop up from time to time. Yeah, a couple of you are chuckling. <laughs> Just a few. Now, some of you, you know, here's the thing about conflict. I've had to learn to embrace conflict. I've had to learn to embrace trial and to run in headlong. That is not my standard position in conflict. When I see a conflict coming, I like to stay as far away as possible and defer and delay almost and probably to a character fault. That's me. I know I look around in this room, you guys are jumping in on conflict. You see it coming, you're like, let's go. We're having the hard conversation now. No, maybe not. Okay, you're in the boat with me. Jesus, in the face of challenging circumstances, in the face of a conflict, decides to step forward and initiate contact with Judas. This is different from the other gospels. In the other gospels, Judas approaches and he calls him master and he gives him a kiss and he had said that that was the identifying mark of the Messiah that they were supposed to capture. But in this view of that garden scene, Jesus makes the initiation. And I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful that even in my sin and in our sin, Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus is the one that reaches out. Maybe, just maybe, there could have been hope for Judas. Jesus, at this point, he's got the mission on lock, and I don't know, if Jesus had a TikTok, this is the one that would pop up, and he'd be like, he understood the assignment. He knew what was coming. Reality is not hidden from Jesus. His reality, your reality, whatever you're facing, reality is not hidden from Jesus. He's not going into this interaction blind. He knows what he's getting himself into. And by the way, John depicts Jesus as going into the garden and then coming out of the garden to meet Judas. Now, if there's an inside and an outside, what does that mean for that location? That there's some kind of demarcation of a boundary, right? There's some type of, of wall or, or something that lets you know you're inside of the garden and something lets you know that you're outside of the garden. And imagine for a moment as we've been getting to know Jesus for just a little bit this summer that Jesus, the door, steps through the gate or the door of the garden. Jesus says, I'm the door. I'm I'm." I'm the one that you can have access to me through if you'll only come to me. And he steps up to the door, Jesus, the embodiment of access to salvation, and asks the people that are assembled, who do you seek? What are you looking for? What's brought you here this evening? I want you to be able to articulate that with clarity. And in John chapter 18, verse 5, we continue. They answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. 
We supply the he in English just to make it a little, make it a little bit more sense. Jesus of Nazareth, I am he, yep, that's me. But Jesus uses the divine name, I am, he said. And John wants you to know that Judas, the traitor, was standing there with him. Judas had not only sent the guard, but he was there amongst the group. And in verse 6, when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Verse 7, again he asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Imagine that for a moment. Jesus willingly presents himself to the people who will bind him and will take him to the cross. He's the one that's initiating the contact here. And think about it too, there's power in the name of Jesus. Hope you don't walk away today without knowing that there is power in the name of Jesus. He utters the name, and there's, there's debate in the scholarship about how many people are showing up, but the language that's used could allow for um, at most 600 people that have come to capture Jesus. Imagine knowing who Jesus is and thinking, we probably better bring about 600 people to make sure that we can get Jesus contained. And all Jesus says is two words, I am, and everybody is flat on their face. There is power in the name of Jesus. And the irony I don't think is lost on Jesus. There's a little bit of comedy here as well. Jesus asks them, who do you seek? He says, They say, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am, and they're all down on the ground. And then Jesus, maybe perhaps a little bit sarcastically says, by the way, who is it that you want? While everybody's just flat out on the ground. Imagine how humiliating that is. With two words, Jesus has just defeated his whole entire army, and he's like, by the way, who did you you come for? He said, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am he. And I think in asking this question, he's giving agency to the group there to identify whom they're truly seeking. If they had come to Jesus the Messiah, they had come for a legitimate purpose to get to understand the Messiah, I think the, the, the events of that night would have gone a little bit differently. But Jesus, the one who is the way, the truth, and the light, says, what are you looking for? What way or direction are you trying to find? What truth are you seeking? What life do you want? You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I'm the guy. But it's how you respond to me that will depend on how everything else will go. And the story continues, verse 8, John chapter 18. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. He says, I told you that I am. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. Remember, he's there with his disciples. Verse 9 continues. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Remember Jesus, the, the bread of life that is being broken at this moment, the light of the world that's being captured in darkness, standing in the door of the garden like a good shepherd looks after his sheep. Jesus promised the Father in John chapter 17 that he would look after his disciples. And even in the face of betrayal and arrest, Jesus' caring heart is for his sheep. His thoughts are turned towards his disciples. He says, if you're looking for me, do nothing with them. Let them go. It's me that you want. 
And the disciples, even though they don't really know what's going on, they could trust Jesus in that moment. Because you see, we are secure in the caring heart of Jesus. We are secure in the caring heart of Jesus. The good shepherd has committed himself to the sheep. He says, I promise, I will take care of you. The world doesn't hate you, the world hates me. And perhaps if we were to apply that to today when, when the wolf or, or the mob that comes to arrest you, you know that one that is depression or suicide or stress or anger, guilt, shame, loss, ruin, whatever it might be, Jesus stands up and says, you want me, you don't want my sheep. Jesus is there to stay, let my disciples go. And he does this willingly. He's the one that stands in the gap. And as many of you know, Melissa and I are uh, expecting a, a baby boy. We didn't publicly announce it. Baby boy in November. Probably not a Michael Jr., but, you know, maybe little bow ties, everything. You know, it's going to happen. And as, as he's been growing inside of her, it's been fun to get to know him with his little, his kicks and his arm movements, his little active guy. And in this whole process, looking forward to the birth of our son. Even now, I'd be willing to do anything for that guy. Whatever he needs, whatever Melissa needs, my heart is for him and for her. And I think that that is microscopic in comparison to what Jesus offers for us. But for those of you that have children, and maybe even your children have children, know the length that you would go for the people that are in your care. That's Jesus right here in this moment. We are secure in the caring heart of Jesus. And Paul will further define this for us in Romans chapter five, verses six through eight. He says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, our little dude, if he's born now, like he's gonna need some help. We all need help, amen? But he's gonna need some help. It says, while they were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, verse seven. Very Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die in verse eight. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus stands up in front of the face of his betrayer. And by the way, there are betrayers that are behind them because he says, let them go and they all disappear. And Peter shows up and goes fire to fire. And he says, I don't have anything to do with that guy. I have no idea who he is. Denies him three times. Other people are deserting. Nobody else is at the cross except for John and a few of the women. They're all gone. And Jesus, in the face of his betrayer that's actively doing it in front of him, and the guys that are passively doing it behind him, he says, I'm going to stand in the gap. I'm going to be here. Let them go. Take me. Take me. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 puts it this way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And scholars and our Bible doctrines will call this the substitutionary atonement. And I know you leave today with those two words and say, I got it, that makes perfect sense. One of the most beautiful aspects of the faith that we hold this Seventh-day Adventist is Jesus' willingness to take our place. 
says, I'm going to stand in the gap. I'm going to be the one who dies. I'm going to take on what you suffer with so that you can enjoy what I have to offer. And I'm going to do it even before you accept it. I'm going to do it while you're still in sin so that when you're ready, your heart is turned towards me. You are welcome here. I think the heart of Jesus says, welcome home. There's always room for one more. Bruce Milne puts it this way in the message of John commentary. The action of Jesus in drawing the enmity upon himself for the freeing of his disciples is a depiction of his whole work of atonement. He takes our place, absorbing our guilt and all its implications that we might go free. I think that's pretty amazing. Jesus is willing to take all of it on so that you and I go free. That whatever arrests us in our lives, whatever sin we struggle with, whatever attacks from the enemy we might experience, Jesus says, let's trade places. You've got my spot, I've got your spot, and we're gonna do that for the rest of eternity. We don't always accept it right off the bat. You gotta love Peter, right? He's gotta show up in this story. John chapter 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who by the way, had a sword, and there could have been 600 people gathered around, remind you, picture this in your mind's eye, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And by the way, the servant's name was Malchus. Wouldn't you like to get into the Bible sometime? By the way, when your ear's cut off, yeah, his name was so-and-so. Peter, in his zealousness for defense of Jesus, maybe I can do something. Maybe there's something that I can do to earn what Jesus is affording me in this moment. Peter valiantly tries to swing a sword. And I don't know about you, like you gotta be pretty good to cut off somebody's ear. I would, I'm not a betting man, but I would bet that Peter was not aiming for Malchus's ear. He's aiming for something else, if you know what I mean. But in some way, he misses and he cuts off the ear. And John doesn't describe it, but I like how the other the gospels describe it. And that Jesus, at this point, in this, in this part of the story, he's not bound, but in the other ones, he is. And whether he is or not, it doesn't necessarily matter. But if he's bound at this point, he goes ahead and undoes the handcuffs. Everybody's standing around, ready to, like, they've arrested him. They're about to take him off. And he picks up the ear from the ground and he puts it back on the side of Malchus's head. And he heals them right in that moment. And then Jesus takes the handcuffs back out of his pocket. Click, click. All right, we're ready to go. Think about, think about the power that Jesus has. They think that they've captured him. They think that they've done everything that he can. And in this moment, he says, ah, I'm the one that's really in control here. And in John chapter 18, verse 11, he'll admonish Peter and he commanded Peter, he says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The Father and I have a, have a plan. We've talked this through. I am committed to the mission. Please don't stand in the way right now. And if you play around a little bit with the imagery in your mind of the cup, it's a, it's a cup of judgment in the Old Testament is the imagery, mostly filled with, with wine. And if you think about Jesus, the vine, and we are the branches, and the Father, the vine dresser, and Jesus wanting to do the will of his Father, 
Jesus, the true vine, the one that's in complete submission to the Father, embracing his disciples in himself. You see, the thing about Jesus, Jesus, the I am, is willing to take on everything you are. Peter in this moment is valiant in his pursuit of maybe I can do something for Jesus. And Jesus says, no, 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 I am willing to go through with this. Jesus, the I am, is willing to take on everything you are. No matter where you've come from, where you're going, the challenges that you faced in your life, Jesus is willing to take on everything that you are. He says, we'll trade places. He says, this is my cross to carry. This is not your cross to carry. I'll cover you. I'll rescue you. I will restore you. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, I'm taking that on so that you might experience life to come. It was January 13, 1982. I remember the day well. I'm not that old. Come on. January 13, 1982, there was an Air Florida Flight 90 headed out of Washington National Airport. It was in the middle of winter. The plane had been de-iced before takeoff, about 45 minutes beforehand. And as the plane taxied down the runway, eyewitnesses reported that there was still maybe some ice on the wings. And as the plane took off at Washington National Airport, it struggled to gain altitude. It was sleeting. It was snowing. There was ice on the wings. It missed two bridges on the Potomac but didn't quite clear the 14th Street Bridge. And as the plane came down out of the sky, it broke its tail off, and then most of the fuselage submerged under the icy Potomac, taking the majority of the passengers and crew on board to an icy grave. But there were a few people in the back of the plane that managed to survive the breaking of the plane. There were six, in fact. One person from the flight crew and five passengers. And as they got, the the calls went out, the helicopter's on its way to see if there's anybody that they can rescue. The helicopter flies over and there's there's six people that are kind of hanging on to, to airplane wreckage and they're bobbing up and down amongst the water and the helicopter flies over and it drops the rescue buoy down to the people. And there's one man in particular by the name of Arland Williams who Each time the rescue buoy comes over top of the people, he takes it out of the air and hands it to somebody else. And he does it once, and he does it twice, and he does it a third time. The helicopter comes, it drops the life preserver, and he passes it on to someone else. And they're working as fast as possible because in icy water, hypothermia can set in in minutes, and they're doing everything they can to save the survivors of this plane. Person number four, person number five. And just as the helicopter comes back over the scene, the pilots see Arland sink below the surface. See, every time the helicopter had come, Arland could have grabbed on to that life preserver for dear life and have been saved. But what he chose that day was to give of his life so that others might experience their life. I don't know about you, but I think that's a picture of Jesus. 
who in every part of the story before he heads to the cross is willing to pass on the life preserver. He says, I'm here to do this for you. Let my disciples go free. Don't worry about them. Take me, take my life. I'm the one that's gonna die for the sins of the world. This isn't just here in this moment, but this is for an eternity. So with that picture of a sinking airplane in your mind and the hero, Arlen Williams letting everyone go first. I'll borrow some words from J.V. Fesco, who's written a beautiful book on the I Am Statements of John. He writes this way. Will you trust Christ, the great I Am? He who walks on water and treads the waves, the one who was and is and is to come. Will you eat the manna from heaven and never hunger again? Will you step into the light of Christ or continue to walk in darkness? Will you search for other points of entry or recognize that Jesus is the door, the way, the truth, and the life? Trust in Jesus, the good shepherd who has laid down his life for his sheep. Seek the true vine so that he might produce the fruit of righteousness and holiness in your life. Believe in Jesus so that on the last day, when the last trump sounds, Jesus will call your name and whether you're alive or dead, you will meet him in the sky. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life and the true vine. In a word, Jesus is the great I am. Will you trust him? Will you trust Jesus, the great I am?